0: I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 49, The Rite of Sodomy, and I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality in the Roman Catholic Church, by Randy ingle volume 1, pages 154 to 169. Wilde sings the praises of Socratic love. Sir Clark then opened the case for the defense. After his opening remarks, he called Mr. Oscar Wilde to the stand. Wilde was asked if he had given truthful testimony at the Queensberry trial, and Wilde answered that he had, that he did. He also said that the allegations of gross indecencies made against him in court carried no truth whatsoever. Upon cross-examination of Wilde, Gill asked the accused about the meaning of Lord Douglas' sonnet, The Two Loves, written in November or December of 1892. Wilde used the occasion to deliver one of the greatest performances of his life, an exposition on the love that dare not speak its name. It was the high point of the trial for Wilde. That love, waxed Wilde, was the supreme affection of an elder for a younger man, as there was between David and Jonathan. It was a platonic love. It is found in the sonnets of Michelangelo and Shakespeare. But grieved Wilde, it is a love that today is gravely misunderstood. This terrible misunderstanding is responsible, Wilde asserted, for his unfortunate presence in the docket this very day. There is nothing unnatural about this love, Wilde proclaimed. It is beautiful, it is fine, it is the noblest form of affection. It is intellectual, and it repeatedly exists between an elder and a younger man, when the elder has intellect and the younger man has all the joy, hope, and glamour of life before him. The whole court was carried away, and there was a tremendous, spontaneous burst of applause in the courtroom. Clark took advantage of the high ground that Wilde had momentarily captured by hammering away at the low life, that is, the boy prostitutes that were attempting to sully the character of one of England's most distinguished playwrights and man of letters. How reliable was the testimony of a Parker, or a Wood, or an Atkins? They were black, blackmailers, prostitutes, perjurers, and petty criminals. In short, they were ungrateful wretches who had taken advantage of Wilde's generous and kindly nature. A verdict of not guilty for Wilde, Clark concluded, would not only clear the name of this great man, but clear society from stain. Wilde's speech on the high ascetics of man-boy love is in the Socratic tradition might have carried the day had the jury not already been exposed to all the lurid details of Wilde's promiscuous sex life. However, the vision of Wilde with his rotund figure and in jaded and flabby appearance, sodomizing or being fellated by young, fresh-faced boys like Charles Parker, must have been a difficult image for the jurors to put out of their mind. Obviously, Wilde's love that dare not speak its name appeared to have suffered in the translation here how it was how was it possible for the jury to reconcile wilde's high-minded philosophical idealization of man-boy affection with his alleged acts of buggery and masturbation upon young poor semi-literate boys from the east end which who sold their bodies to wealthy pederasts like Wilde for a promise of warm lodgings, a decent meal, and a few pounds with which to survive another day. Wilde's love had sordid commercial sex written all over it. The implications of his sordid involvement with decent lads like Shelley and Maver and the Parker brothers before they met Alfred Taylor were even worse. Alfred Taylor, Wilde's fellow prisoner, represented by J.P. Grain, took the stand next. After a few brief questions by Gill on the manner in which he earned a living and the boys he brought to his residence, he was excused. The rest of the fourth day's proceedings was taken up with closing statements with Clark, who denounced the low character of the boys who testified against Wilde, and Gill, who reminded the jury that these boys had nothing to gain and everything to lose by testifying against Wilde. On the fifth and final day of the trial, Judge Charles rendered his opinion before turning the matter over to the jury, an opinion that overall was in favor of Wilde. Justice Charles determined that Wilde and Taylor were not co-conspirators and the charges of conspiracy were dismissed. He also declared Shelley to be unstable. With regard to Wilde's literary works, he said he did not regard Dorian Gray as a culpable novel as for the testimony of the Savoy employees he said that he found it difficult to believe that wilde carried on so openly at the hotel and the employees did not speak out about the incidents before the trial however he declared he did not reject the testimony of witnesses about wilde's and taylor's behavior with shelley and wood and atkins and the parker brothers it was the task of the jury to determine if wilde committed indecent acts with these young men in violation of the law, and if Taylor assisted him in any way and or committed such acts. Jury deliberation took place on May 1. The 12-member all-male jury was out for just under four hours. A verdict of not guilty was pronounced on on the count relating to Atkins. Regarding the other counts, there appears to be some discrepancy. One juror is supposed to have later revealed that the vote to convict Wilde was 11 to 1. However, no unanimous consensus was forthcoming. A retrial was ordered. Clark was able to obtain bail from another judge in chambers. Wilde had three weeks of freedom. It was his last chance to run. The Crown versus Wilde conviction. Wilde's retrial lasted six days from May 20 to 25, 1895. The presiding judge was Sir Alfred Wills, a staunch conservative. Justice Gill was replaced by the Crown's high-powered solicitor general, Sir Frank Lockwood, and Sir Edward Clark continued his defense of Wilde. Although the trial was largely a replay of Wilde's first trial, there were some new revelations, for example, The jury was informed by the defense that the prosecution Queensberry had been paying the boy witnesses against Wild a five-pound stipend from day one of the Wild-Queensberry trial. Lockwood insisted that the prosecution did only that which was necessary to keep the witnesses from being tampered with and housed in a central and safe location for trial purposes. It was also revealed that the prosecution had been able to arrange for a three-month leave of absence from the Army for Charles Charlie Parker in order to secure his testimony against Wilde. The jurors were also informed that it was Maurice Schwab who had introduced Taylor to Wilde. This would not have been of any particular interest except for the fact that Schwab was Lockwood's nephew by marriage. Coincidentally, Schwab was now safely tucked away in France. On the political scene, there were signs that the original neutral, if not favorable, views of Rosebery's liberal government had hardened against Wilde, as evidenced by Lockwood's takeover as lead prosecutor for the Crown. Wilde had been given every opportunity to seek asylum from prosecution abroad, but he stubbornly chose to stay in England. Queensberry was still on the warpath, and it was widely believed that he had held evidence against Roseberry, possibly linked to his association with Lord Dumlandrick, that could affect the upcoming elections if made public. There was also considerable pressure building from certain political factions in parliament and from the general public who perceived the crown's less than enthusiastic prosecution of Wilde as an indication that the rich and famous by way of their privileged class or station in life were immune from prosecution for the violation of england's anti-sodomy statutes the crown made quick work of poor alfred taylor he was again poorly represented in court by Mr. Grain, who was no match for Lockwood. Taylor's earlier public school connections did not save him. In fact, they contributed to his downfall. He was quickly tried for gross indecency and convicted after only one day of testimony. Now he was an all but forgotten and pathetic figure sitting in jail awaiting sentencing. Why was the crown dragging his feet with regard to Oscar Wilde? The one thing that Wilde did have going for him was the fact that the original charges against him and Taylor had been modified and reduced. The conspiracy charge with Taylor was dropped, and the new indictment was reduced from 25 to only 8 counts. Justice Wills ordered a new jury impaneled for Wilde, and the witnesses had to be recalled. As the prosecution began its case, it was clear that their star witness, Edward Shelley, had become more of a liability than an asset. Justice Wills declared that Shelley was an accomplice to Wilde, and therefore his testimony was not credible unless corroborated. Clark had revised his strategy by this time, and his arguments came across as more of a plea for mercy for Wilde than an aggressive attack upon the prosecution's witnesses, although he took several swipes at Charlie Parker as an uncollaborated and unstable witness. What he had not been able to prove, however, was that the boys were lying about the sexual favors they performed for Wilde. At one point, Clark declared that the Wilde trial was... Operating as an act of indemnity for all the blackmailers in London. Clark admitted that Wilde was now a broken man and lamented that a life filled with brilliant promise with a bright reputation should have been brought so low by the torrent of prejudice spewed from Fleet Street, the press. A not guilty verdict, Clark concluded, would save Wilde from absolute ruin and permit him to live among us a life of honor and repute, and to give in the maturity of his genius gifts to our literature, of which he has given only the promise in his early youth. Lockwood closed the case for the prosecution by reiterating the homoerotic nature of Wilde's love letters to Lord Douglas, Wilde's blackmail payment to Wood, and the testimony of the many boys who are alleged to have had sexual relations with Wilde, testimony that appeared to be collaborated by other more reliable sources, including the employees of the Savoy. Concerning the issue of blackmail raised by Clark, Lockwood reminded the jury that the genesis of the blackmailer is the man who has committed these acts of indecency with him. Were it not for men who were willing to pay for the vice, there would be no blackmail, he said. After Lockwood and Clark had delivered their concluding statements, the jury foreman who was permitted to ask the judge questions asked the one question that was on everyone's mind. In view of the intimacy between Lord Alfred Douglas and Mr. Wilde, was a warrant ever issued for the apprehension of Lord Alfred Douglas? Judge, judge Wills replied that the judge's jury's duty was to determine the guilt or innocence of the man in the docket. Mr. Wilde, and no other. It was time now for Justice Wills to have his say. Unlike Justice Charles, he found Wilde's letters to Lord Douglas to be indecent. He also said that it's fair to judge a man by the company he keeps, a reference to Taylor and his low class boys. He then thanked the members of the jury for their patience and instructed them to retire to deliberate the verdict lockwood thought he had lost the case and congratulated clark on his win but clark knew better two hours later the jury returned with a guilty verdict on all counts except that relating to edward shelley on may 25 1895 justice wills passed a sentence upon wild and taylor for having violated section 11 of the criminal law amendment act Oscar Wilde and Alfred Taylor, the crime of which you have been convicted is so bad that one has to put stern restraint upon oneself to prevent one's self from describing in language which I would rather not use the sentiment which must be rise to the breast of every man of honor who had heard the details of these two terrible trials, that the jury have arrived at a Correct verdict. In this case, I cannot persuade myself to entertain the shadow of a doubt. And I hope at all events that those who sometimes imagine that a judge is half-hearted in the cause of decency and morality because he takes care, no prejudice shall enter into the case, may see that that is consistent at least with the common sense indignation at the horrible charges brought home to both of you. It is no use for me to address you. People who can do these things must be dead to all sense of shame, and one cannot hope to produce any effect upon them. It is the worst case I have ever tried. That you, Taylor, kept a kind of male brothel is impossible to doubt and that you, Wilde, have been the center of a circle of extensive corruption of the most hideous kind among young men, it is equally impossible to doubt. I shall, under such circumstances, be expected to pass the severest sentence that the law allows. In my judgment, it is totally inadequate for such a case as this. The sentence of the court is that each of you be imprisoned and kept to hard labor for two years. Although Wilde appeared to be reeling from a state of shock as the sentence was pronounced, it could not have been totally unexpected. In a sense, he had already been convicted and later sentenced by the press when he was forced to drop his case against Queensberry almost two months before. In retrospect, Clark's strategy of having Taylor and Wilde tried separately may have backfired. Taylor's trial and conviction for gross indecencies and the procurement for illicit purposes had piggybacked Wilde's second trial so closely that it would have been an obvious miscarriage of justice for Justice wills to have sentenced Taylor to prison and let Wilde, his accomplice in crime, go free. All in all, despite the worldwide notoriety that surrounded the trials, Wilde had received a fair trial. All the justices involved, whatever their personal feelings, appeared to have acted with integrity and compassion for all the witnesses, including Wilde, and they gave Wilde's solicitors the greatest latitude in the defense of their client. Wilde was found guilty because the evidence against Wilde was too damning to permit any other verdict but guilty. But did the punishment fit the crime? After all, Violation of the LeBoucher anti-buggery statute was a misdemeanor, not a felony. Obviously, Justice Wills believed that in the case of Oscar Wilde and Alfred Taylor, the punishment did fit the crime, at least in a minimalist sense. And equally obvious is the fact that an overwhelming majority of Englishmen agreed with him. The spontaneous outpouring of public support from every quarter and every class of English society for Queensbury and against Wilde that followed Justice Willis' ruling, reflected the prevailing sentiment that the high priest of decadence had finally gotten what he deserved. Among the prominent Victorian personalities that volunteered an opinion on the subject of Oscar Wilde's impending imprisonment was Henry Labouchere, MP, editor of the journal Truth, who had known Wilde on and off for years. LaBouchere believed that the root cause of Wilde's tragic condition stemmed from his pathological need for attention, alluding to the Irish playwright's unbalanced mental state that prompted him to seek notoriety at any cost. The liberal leader wrote, it would not surprise me if he were deriving a keen enjoyment from a position which most people, whether really innocent or guilty would prefer to die rather than occupy. Mr. Travers Humphreys, who had assisted Clark in the, in the defense of Wild, expressed similar feelings in his book, in his A Book of Trials, published more than half a century later. Humphreys blamed Wild's vanity and exhibitionism, that are typical of the moral code held by men like him, as the primary cause of his downfall. Others like W.T. Stead, whose moral campaign against white slavery was instrumental in marshalling Parliament's support for the 1895 Criminal Law Amendment Act, tied Wilde's pederastic habits to the rise of the Hellenistic tradition in England's public schools and Oxford and Cambridge and other centers of higher education. If all persons guilty of Oscar Wilde's offenses were to be clapped into jail, there would be a surprising exodus from Eton and Harrow, Rugby and Winchester, to Pentonville and Holloway up prisons. He said, Stead then called upon all headmasters to pluck up a little courage from the results of the wild trial and endeavor to rid our Protestant schools of a foul and unnatural vice which is not found in Catholic establishments at all events in this country stead was by no means alone in connecting the rise of pedantry among oxford and cambridge educated youth to the morally corrosive influence of the english school of asceticism as preached and by the likes of benjamin to and walter pater in hellenism and homosexuality in victorian oxford Classicist Linda Dowling examined the crucial role played by the proponents of the Hellenistic tradition in fashioning the Greek vice as a culturally acceptable phenomenon at Oxford and Cambridge. Men like Jewett, she wrote, were skilled in subverting Christianity's opposition to homosexual behavior, particularly in its Greek form, by presenting these traditional moral prohibitions as being outdated and parochial. Homoerotic behavior hereto associated with effeminacy was to be masculinized along Hellenistic lines, the Greek warrior virile model, and offered as an alternative by which a post-Christian and decaying society could rejuvenate itself. It is not surprising, then, that the few voices raised in Wilde's defense after his conviction for pederasty, came almost exclusively from Oxford and Cambridge and London's literary and artistic circles. Even here, however, great care was taken to avoid any suggestion that any defence of Wilde implied a defence of his homoerotic behaviour. For example, Robert Buchanan, a well-known playwright and contributor to the Daily Telegraph, one of London's largest metro dailies, called for a modicum, of charity, Christian or otherwise, toward Wilde and warned against casting the first stone. Buchanan's call for the forgiveness of Wilde's sexual transgressions in light of his many literary and artistic contributions to society takes on a somewhat sardonic overtone when one realizes that Wilde himself never expressed a desire to be forgiven why should he in his mind why should he in his mind he never truly believed he had done anything wrong laws were for ordinary people not wild his art put him above the law as croft cook so aptly put it wild was the apotheosis of the artist whose privilege it was to ignore all rules of human conduct all ethical values all conventions all legislation Justice Willis was correct in his assessment when he read that any references to shame or guilt would be wasted on the convicted prisoners, at least as far as Wilde was concerned. Wilde did not have to overcome any sense of shame or guilt because he did not entertain those feelings in the first place. In a poignant letter of February 27, 1898, Written shortly before her death in Italy, Constance lamented that Wilde's punishment hadn't done him much good since it did not teach him the lesson he most needed, namely that he is not the only person in the world. As for the rest of Victorian society, the near unanimity and ferocity of public opinion against Wilde was a timely barometer of the horror with which most Englishmen contained, continued to view. Male homosexual behavior. Further the public's exposure to the sordid realities of London's criminal homosexual underworld, prostitution, drugs, pornography, blackmail, when combined with the airing of wild, dirty laundry, literally and figuratively reinforced public support for Britain's anti sodomy laws. Prison life and beyond. After the joint sentencing on may twenty five. 1895, Wilde and Taylor were taken to the harsh environs of Newgate Prison to await transfer to Pendonville Prison. Later, Wilde was sent to Wandsworth, Wandsworth Prison in North London, where he despised, where he despaired of life. When he became seriously ill, he was brought to the prison infirmary where he spent two months convalescing, then on November 13, without notice, he was handed, he was hauled from the hospital ward, dressed in prison clothing, handcuffed, and taken to Clapham, train junction, to await public transport to Reading Gaol, where he served out the remainder of his two-year sentence in de profundis wild recalled the humiliation of that day most especially the jeering crowd of passers-by who laughed and mocked him as he waited for the train policemen on either side and the pouring rain for one half hour they appeared to him to be without pity they should have known how to interpret sorrow better he recalled from his jail cell fortunately for Wilde, his health and mental outlook improved significantly at reading especially when eight months after his arrival there for the government governorship of the prison was transferred from major henry b isaacson to major j o nelson a progressive and compassionate reformer who was sympathetic to Wilde. in february 1896 constance traveled from Genoa to inform Oscar of the death of his beloved mother. This would be their final meeting. She was in poor health. That summer, the courts ordered that joint guardianship of Wild's two sons be given to Constance and her cousin, Adrian Hope. Constance died in relative obscurity on April 7, 1898, in Genoa, Italy, after complications from an earlier operation on her spine. To say that Wilde had ushered his wife to an early grave by his brutal indifference to her for most of their married life would be a gross understatement. The fact that Wilde brought his sex partners to his own home and that he engaged in sexual familiarities with these young men in front of his family and the servants demonstrated the contempt with which he held his wife, his children, and his marriage vows. While reading... Wilde wrote a number of pointed letters to Robbie Ross, whom Wilde had designated as his literary executor at the time of his death with complete control of all his plays, books, and papers. Wilde said that he chose Robbie because my wife doesn't understand my art and his son Cyril was too young. And a short letter to Ross dated March 10, 1896, concerning some legal matters with Constance's solicitors. Wilde acknowledged the unhappiness that he had brought upon his wife and the ruin brought on his children. He expressed gratitude to Aurelien Marie luna Poe, who despite Wilde's disgrace in England, had produced Wilde's Salome at the theatre de, de Louvre in Paris. The following fall, Wilde sent Ross another letter informing him that his application to Whitehall to commute the remainder of his sentence had been refused. And On the brighter side, he had been granted an unlimited supply of ink and paper. He was free from hard labor, and he had ready access to a number of his favorite books. Contemplating his release from prison, Wilde said that he was conscious uh, that he would be entering a world that does not want me. I do not think that I would blame anyone for my vices. My friends had as little to do with them as I had with theirs, he told Robbie. Nature was in this matter a stepmother to us all, wild muse without bitterness, making an oblique reference to his homosexual misadventures, Wilde confessed, I admit that I lost my head. I curse myself day and night for my folly and allowing something to dominate my life. At the end of his letter, Wilde repeated his instruction to Ross that all his letters were confidential and were not to be shown or discussed with anyone. De profundis, Wilde's last will and testament. On April 1, 1897, about seven weeks before his anticipated date of release from Reading Jail, Wilde sent Ross a letter stating that he had completed a manuscript that would fully explain, not defend, his extraordinary behavior. A psychological catharsis that will tell the truth concerning the circumstances that led to his imprisonment, the lessons that prison life has taught him. And the promise of a new life that awaits him beyond Reading's gates. Wilde was as good as his word. A completed work in the format of a letter to Douglas that Wilde had worked on at, on, at intervals during the last months of his imprisonment, written on blue stamped prison foolscap paper, was presented to Ross shortly after his release from prison. Wilde instructed Ross, as his literary executor, to send the original letter to Bossy and to retain a copy for himself. In fact, Ross kept the original and sent a typed copy to Douglas, who is reported to have read the first few pages and trashed it. After Wilde's death, the Douglas family tried to secure the original from Ross, but he had deposited it, in 1909 with the British Museum under a 60-year embargo. The original letter to Bossy was released to the Wilde family estate on January 1, 1960 and made available to scholars and the general public. A heavily excised version of Wilde's letter to Bossy, however, did appear in 1905, five years after Wilde's death, Ross had it published first in German and then in English. The title, De Profundis* was assigned to the manuscript by Robert Ross, not Wilde, and was based on the Old Testament psalm, which begins with the words, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, Psalm 129. As with all of Wilde's writings, De Profundis* lends itself to a multitude of interpretations. Wilde's biographer, Richard Ellman, called it possibly the longest love letter ever written. Bossy's biographer, Douglas Murray, while noting that the work contains some of Wilde's greatest prose, nevertheless saw it as a series of pathetically mundane squabbles. Others viewed the work as a welcome but brief respite from Wilde's perpetual narcissism. Clearly, it was all of these and more. Read from a traditional Catholic perspective, I believe that one could also characterize De Profundis as highly subversive, as he had done so many times before. Wilde used scripture and Christian references in this work to undermine Christian beliefs and morals. In De Profundis, Wilde recreated the passion of the Lord in his own image with Wilde as the Christ who willingly lays down his life, for his art his beloved Belsi, as judas who betrays his master his trials as his garden of gethsemane hypocritical british society as the new pharisees demanding wilde's death and his imprisonment in Reading jail as his crucifixion and burial that wilde intended for his work to be more than a simple letter of an aggrieved lover is evident in his letter of April 1, 1897, to Ross, in which he explained that he conceived the work as a, an encyclical letter or bull, similar to those issued by the Holy Father in Rome that are titled after the opening words of the document. a epistola opened with the words, in Corsari et Vinculus, imprisoned in chains, that Wilde was angry with Douglas cannot be doubted; that he had a bone to pick with God is less obvious. But before exploring these subtleties, let us look at the overall content of the work. In his prefatory dedication to De Profundis, that accompanied the 1905 English printing of Wilde's work by Messrs Methuen in London. Robert Ross acknowledged the assistance Robert Ross acknowledged the assistance of his of Herr Mayerfield, who published the first translation of Wilde's abridged letter in German in die Neue Neue runschau. Ross explained that the original manuscript consisted of eighty. Close written pages on twenty folio sheets, and that only he Major Nelson of Reading jail and the confidential typist had read the whole of it, contrary to a general impression it conforms contains nothing scandalous. Roscoe explained a large portion of it is taken up with business and private matters of no interest whatsoever he added the portion of the manuscript in which which occupied more than one-third of the original text and which was suppressed and not released until 1960, is, of course, Wilde's bitterly scathing attack on Douglas, as the architect of his destruction. In his opening salvo against his dear bossy, Wilde decried the fact that during his two long years of imprisonment he never received a single line from Douglas our ill-fated and most lamentable friendship has ended in ruin and public infamy for me, Wilde wrote. Nevertheless, he said that his memory of their ancient affection had helped him to curb his bitterness toward Douglas, that Wilde found it difficult to actually do so is evident in the charges that he proceeded to make against Douglas. Wilde accused Bossier of being spoiled and Bane, a mama's boy, a financial blood-sucking leech, a madman from a family of madmen, and the font of Wilde's artistic and ethical degradation. He reminded Bossy that he was corrupted before Wilde met him and that it was Bossy who first contacted Wilde by letter asking for assistance in dealing with a blackmailer with whom Douglas had had a homosexual relationship. He reiterated the details of the Savoy Hotel fiasco and the terrible circumstances of the Brighton incident when Douglas deserted the seriously ill Wilde to seek his own pleasures, justifying himself later with the hurtful quip, "'When you are not on your own pedestal, you are not interesting. "'The next time you are ill, I will go away at once.' Wilde admitted that at this point in their relationship— he had decided to separate himself completely from Douglas, but the untimely death of Bossy's elder brother, Francis, sent him rushing back to console his beloved Bossy. The only thing that made Bossy bearable to him, Wilde said, was a deep, heartfelt conviction that, through it all, Douglas really did love him. Wilde, of course, was still filled with anger that Douglas had succeeded in making him the catpaw between him and his father and for deliberately goading and taunting queensberry into writing the libelous the libelous calling card that started wild on his way to prison and he struck out at douglas's carelessness and leaving wild his personal letters around where blackmailers could get them an obvious reference to the famous Hyacinthus letter that was used against him at his trial. Then Wilde delivered the coup de grace. Of all Bossy's defects of character, Wilde wrote, the most fatal was his utter lack of imagination, the quality that shows one to see, that allows one to see things and people in their real as, as in their ideal relations if douglas hadn't already thrown oscar wilde's litter into the garbage in a fit of rage he probably did so now many Wilde's charges against him he knew to be true but not all the only thing bossy knew for certain was that he was as devoted to oscar to oscar as oscar was to him Hyde Hyde goes one step further and states that Douglas was completely captivated by Wilde's charms, and in the end, he was without doubt more devoted to Wilde than the stake, than the older man had ever been to him. Having vented his spleen on poor Bossy, the penniless, fatherless, distraught Wilde now turned his attention to the horrors of prison life. This marks the point at which Ross. Chose to start his the 1895 abridged version of De Profundis, Wilde described his current position in society as being between that of Gilles de Retz, the, the 15th century companion of the Joan of Arc who was charged with witchcraft, child murder, and sodomy and burned at the stake, and the Marquis de Sade, who needs no introduction. Wilde had become a man of sorrows. The small iron-barred window of his cell prevented him from seeing the sun and the moon. It is is always twilight in one's cell, as it is always midnight in one's heart, he told Douglas. Wilde said that his sorrows of late had been compounded by the sad tidings of the death of his revered mother, by legal action that that has taken his two children from him by the incessant hounding of his creditors, and he the growing and by the growing realization of the disgrace which has fallen on the Wilde name as a result of his terrible and revolting scandal. Unlike other men, Wilde wrote, Prison has offered no sanctuary for him. Wilde said he remembered that beautiful, unreal world of art, where he was once king, and where he would have remained had he not let himself be lured into the imperfect world of coarse, uncompleted passion and of appetite without distinction, desire without limit, and formless greed. I was a man who stood in public, who stood in symbolic relations to the art and culture of my age. Wilde wrote Douglas, he then acknowledged all the gifts that the goals the gods had lavished upon him genius a distinguished name, high social position, brilliancy, intellectual daring, and how he ultimately threw away this inheritance in a search for new sensations and perverse desires, which at the end was a malady or a madness or both. With obvious reference to his double life as a pederast, Wilde said he forgot that every little action of the common day makes and unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has somehow to cry aloud from the door house tops happily wilde continued his horrific suffering in prison had not been without meaning for it had revealed to him something that would always be part of his nature but until now hidden humility and it is this it is this new element found within himself that held the promise of a new life, a vita, vita nuova for him, and means of unearthing a fresh mode of realization. That his new life would include a reconciliation with his beloved Bossy, whom Wilde ultimately forgives, is a is possible integration of one of the most haunting sentiments Wilde expressed in his epistle to Douglas. When you really want it, forgiveness, you will find it waiting for you. Among the many essential tasks that he must tackle in order to successfully approach life from a completely new standpoint, Wilde told Bossy, is to free himself from any possible bitterness of feeling against the world and to seek happiness apart from the external things of life. In this endeavor, however, Wilde said, he must look solely to himself and rejected outright any benefit said to be accrued from morality or religion or reason. Regarding morality, Wilde said he is a born antinomian, a man made for exceptions, not for laws. As for religion, he said his gods are not unseen, but dwell in temples made with hands. His creed, he said, has been made perfect and complete within the circle of actual experience. When I think about religion at all, I feel as if I would like to be found, and I'd like to found an order for those who cannot conceive, who cannot believe. The confraternity of the fatherless, one might call it, were on an altar on which no taper burned. A priest in whose heart peace and had no dwelling might celebrate with unblessed Bread and a chalice empty of wine, Wilde rejected God the Father since he believed God the Father had rejected him. Wilde also said he rejected reason as a helpmate insofar so far as it is expressed through law, for he found himself for himself had been convicted both by the wrong and by wrong and unjust laws as well as a wrong and unjust system. The supreme vice is shallowness, Wilde asserted, and society shares in this vice when it fails to acknowledge the the pain caused by the punishment it inflicts on individuals. Where, then, did Wilde believe his salvation lay? In his art and in his life, and as an artist, he told Douglas. Then, on a somewhat peevish note, Wilde told Douglas that the only person's he chooses to associate with at this point in his life are artists and people who have suffered. Obviously, this left the pampered Lord Douglas out of the running, at least for the day. Wilde tried to impress upon Bossie once again the horrors of prison life with its endless private privations and restrictions that makes one rebellious, not humble. The most terrible thing about prison life, Wilde wrote, is not that it breaks one's heart. Hearts are made to be broken, but that it turns one's heart to stone and makes it impervious to grace. Then in a softer, more conciliatory tone, Wilde assured his bossy that he hadn't forsaken his whole life altogether. In fact, he said his new life is not, of course, No new life at all, but simply a continuance by means of development and evolution of my former life. I don't regret for a single moment having lived for pleasure, Wilde told his lover, but to live for pleasure only is a very limiting experience, one that interferes with self-development and is unworthy of the true artist. It is at this point in his monologue that Wilde assumed the persona of Christ, the supreme artist, as well as the supreme individualist, and Wilde was his prophet. Like Christ, Wilde believed that he was betrayed with a kiss, denied by his friends, rejected by the high priest of orthodoxy, condemned by the magistrate of civil service, covered with a scarlet cloak, crucified before his own mother, died, and was buried in a tomb. Then, in a slight digression from self-pity, Wilde said that no man is truly worthy of love, yet God bestows his love more love freely on man. Love is a sacrament that should be taken kneeling, and domine non sum dignus should be on the lips and in the hearts of those who receive it, Wilde told his lover. The homoerotic implication of Wilde's prose is readily distinguishable. The next time that Wilde applied ink to paper, he informed Douglas that should he, Wilde, ever resume his writings, he would take up two particular themes, the first being the role of Christ as a precursor of the romantic movement in life, and the second, the artistic life considered in its relation to conduct. In Wilde's eyes, Christ's morality is all sympathy, just what morality should be, and his justice is all poetical justice, exactly what justice should be. His chief war was against the Philistines, Wilde wrote Douglas, The war every child of light, presumably this includes himself, has to wage. Christ condemned their inaccessibility to ideas, their dull respectability, their tedious orthodoxy, their worship of vulgar success, their entire preoccupation with the gross materialistic society of life, and their ridiculous estimate of themselves and their importance, Wilde continued. For Wilde, however, it is when he deals with the sinner that Christ is most romantic in the sense of most real. His primary desire was not to reform people any more than his primary desire was to relieve suffering, Wilde wrote. Rather, he told Douglas in a manner not yet understood of the world he regarded sin and suffering as being in themselves beautiful holy things and modes of perfection. That Wilde juxtaposed sin and suffering and then claimed that Christ sin to be a holy and beautiful thing and the sinner to be in a mode of perfection is indeed a Christ fashioned in Wilde's own image. With his days of imprisonment drawn to a close, Wilde sought to end his letter to his beloved bossy on a hopeful note while he dismissed the idea that prison had brought about any reform in the matter of morals. Wilde reiterated his belief that his suffering in prison had helped him to become a deeper man. Wilde then attempted to put to paper a partial explanation as to the nature of his pederastic affairs with lower-class young men. This section of De Profundis* represents some of the writer's most familiar prose. People thought it dreadful of me to have entertained at dinner the evil things of life, and to have found pleasure in their company. But then, from the point of view through which I, as an artist in life, approached approached them, they were delightfully suggestive and stimulating. It was like feasting with panthers. The danger was half the excitement. I don't feel at all ashamed at having known them. They were intensely interesting. What I do feel ashamed of is the horrible Philistine atmosphere into which I was brought. To entertain them was an astonishing adventure. What is loathsome to me is the memory of indeterminable visits paid by me to the solicitor Humphreys when in the ghastly glare of a bleak room I would sit with a serious face telling serious lies to a bald man till I really... Ground and yawned with ennui. I had to come forward to the as the champion of respectability and conduct, of puritanism in life and of morality in art. Wilde then expressed his appreciation to his loyal friends who have stood by him throughout his many trials and imprisonment, including Robert Sherard, Frank Harris, Moore Ardy, Moore Addy, Arthur clifton robbie ross and to the many nameless persons who have been kind to him in his prison life wilder confessed that he has grown tired of the articulate utterances of men and things and he expressed his longing to discover the mystical in art the mystical in life the mystical in nature he said he knew society will have no place for him but he is not discouraged for he believes nature whose sweet rains fall on the unjust and just alike will welcome him with her eternal embrace. She will hang the night with stars so that I might walk abroad in the darkness without stumbling and send the wind over my footprints so that none may track me to my hurt. She will cleanse me in great water and with better herbs make me whole. In terms of their future relationship, Wilde told Douglas that he intended to be more of an individualist, not less. In his new life, however, Bossy was agreeable. However, if possible were agreeable, Wilde said they could meet in June in some quiet town like Bruges and that hopefully love would show them the way to of future happiness. Wilde made it clear that he considered his exile from England to be permanent. Wilde then instructed Douglas that he must not be afraid of the past. If people tell you that it is irrevocable, do not believe them, he said. The past, the present, and the future are one moment in the sight of God, in whose sight we should try to live, You came to me to learn the pleasure of life and the pleasure of art, Wilde concluded. Perhaps I am chosen to teach you something more wonderful, the meaning of sorrow and its beauty. Wilde signed his letter, Your Affectionate Friend, Oscar Wilde. The Release and Death of Oscar Wilde On the evening of May 18, 1897, Wilde was taken from Reading Jail to Pentonville Prison, since prisoners were required to be released from the prison that they were originally admitted to. This helped to avoid any unpleasant public demonstration the following morning. There was a report that he had made a request for a six-month stay with the Jesuits of Farm Street, but the request was turned down. And I'm going to have to stop here and continue in my next podcast with more of this because I'm already at 54 minutes, so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.